This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. Okay. I don't care how small it was. Did you have anything to do with the way Claude got drowned? What makes you ask that, Mother? Now look me in the eye and tell me the truth, because I must know. No, Mother, I didn't. You're not going back to the Fern School next year. They don't want you anymore. Okay. I'm going to call Miss Fern and have her come over here. You think I lied to you her? You did lie to her. But not to you, Mother, not to you. You know something? Miss Fern dyes her hair. Warning, you are about to listen to a podcast whose theme dares to be startlingly different. We ask that you do not divulge the unusual climax of this podcast. Thank you. Good evening, students. You've hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Bradford Lorick, and I need a drink. I'm Eric Winnick, and I'll be serving up gin and tonics momentarily. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. Thanks, though. I'd prefer a half a bottle of bonded corn or a bourbon and water. Thank you very much. Um, we call this podcast Scare You because tonight one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this bruh will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, our teacher of terror, our professor of pain, you. Making you our dunce of delirium, Tremens. Mr. Lorick, I'd like to uh, interrupt our usual introduction here because, you know, folks, a lot of work goes into these podcasts, and uh, we don't know if people are listening to these all the way through. I mean, Anchor won't tell us, so uh, we'd love for you to do us a little favor. Am I right, sir? Oh, you are correct, Mr. Winnick. However long you listen to scare you, five minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and 20, whatever it is, if we give you one iota of listening pleasure, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We'd prefer five stars, but we'll take four star. It just helps with ranking. It helps with SEO. It helps with ROI, KPI, LMAO, DTF, all that stuff. And we know it's hard to find. Look, we've been there. So when you download the podcast, just scroll down on the app to where it says leave a review. That's all you got to do. In advance, we thank you. All right, back to the podcast. Joining us today to discuss the 1956 film, The Bad Seed, is a very special guest, our friend, Michael Musto. 
friend, well, yes, I, I'm proud to say, and neighbor and cultural connoisseur and critic and curator of terrible, terrible, rancid movies for his own movie club, of which I am a card-carrying member, and a literal living legend, Michael Musto, is best known as the long-running force of nature behind his eponymous La Dolce Musto column in The Village Voice, to which he is still a contributor. His articles about showbiz and nightlife have also appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Vanity Fair, and he currently writes a gossip column for Queerty.com in addition to contributing to the Daily Beast. Michael has written four books, including the nonfiction guide Downtown and the novel Manhattan on the Rocks, and he has been a TV commentator on pop culture for quite a long time, popping up on CNN, as well as in documentaries on Showtime, Netflix, FX, Vice, and Amazon Prime. Uh, Yeah, I know he's on CNN, Eric. I get the text messages and the screen caps bright and early in the morning. And uh, Michael, I believe there are 18 pieces of hot, steaming, streaming content featuring your fine self on Tubi alone right now. Um, I'm going to say this nicely, guys, but give me those shoes back. (laughs) Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. I I have the crescent-shaped marks on the backs of my hands to prove it. (laughs) So you have watched The Bad Seed. Once or twice. Now, Michael, I am told that you have won uh, the Glammy Award for Best Nightlife Writer eight times. Uh, As far as you know, is that a record? And do you feel they should just name the award after you at this point? (laughs) It's actually been nine times, the one time I tied. And then plus, I also got the Lifetime Achievement Living living Legend because they must have thought I was dying or something, but I wasn't. Right, 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 right. I'm up for my 11th award. Yes, I do think it should be called the Michael Musto Award or the Sarah Siddons Award. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Mr. Musto, one of the first questions we like to ask our guests at Scare You is, what is your history with the horror genre? And do you have a favorite horror film? Well, I'm not sure what you exactly call horror because the horror movies I like don't have a lot of actual bloodshed. They're more psychological. Would you call Psycho and Rosemary's Baby horror films? Of course. Yes. Well, those are my two favorite. Yeah, those are my absolute. Rosemary's Baby is a perfect movie. And I saw it as a kid and I loved it because you learn everything through Rosemary's eyes. As she discovers stuff, you discover it. They could have destroyed the whole movie if they show at the beginning Guy, John Cassavetes, meeting with Ruth Gordon and her husband and plotting to give away Mia Farrow's body to the devil in exchange for him to become successful. They don't show, they show him going over there a lot. They show Ruth Gordon bringing Mia Farrow, a, you know, a drink that makes her pass out and she wakes up with scratches and vague recollections of being raped by the devil. Hopefully it was just a nightmare. Turns out it wasn't. And increasingly she sees what's going on and so do we. It's a brilliant film down to like Sammy Davis's memoir, Yes, I Can, is on Guy's bookshelf. Though how he even affords an apartment in the Dakota as a struggling actor who is in a play called Nobody Loves an Albatross, I will never know. Beyond me. And then Psycho is another brilliant movie. Uh, Pretty perfect. There are only two things in Psycho that bug me. One is when Martin, uh, not Martin Lando, (laughs) Martin Balsam kind of falls down the steps in a very overdramatic way. It's not naturalistic. 
The other thing I mentioned to Janet Lee, and she didn't get what I was saying. Maybe you guys will get this. When Janet Lee first goes to Bates Motel, she overhears Norman Bates talking to his mother, and the voices overlap. Okay? So there have to be two people. I said, well, that was a trick that Hitchcock did to make you think his mother is alive. He's not talking to a record or anything. He's so how could he how could the voices be overlapping if right. he's talking to himself? Deliberate yeah. misdirection. That was a deliberate trick that Hitchcock played. I think it was unfair. Let me just add about Rosemary's baby. I loved it so much that I gave up my allowance to take my parents to see it again. I was like, folks, you're gonna love it. You're you're gonna love, I'll pay. I'll pay. Because I needed a bonding experience with my parents, but horror was not a bonding experience with my parents. My mother spent the whole time praying and just praying and going, oh, dear God. When she was raped by the devil, my mother was dying. And my father kept saying, this could never happen. Well, and, you know, of course, the only thing, the only thing wrong with Psycho in comparison to Rosemary's Baby is that Ruth Gordon is not in Psycho. Exactly. Well, she should have been Mrs. Bates in flashbacks. <laughs> so I love horror. I do love horror. I don't like overdone, you know, torture porn. I just think it's uh, psychological horror is so much more effective. That's a good segue into let's start discussing what this film is about. Um, now, first, I'm just going to ask the question, Eric, what would you give me for a basket of kisses? <laughs> Why, I'd give you a basket of hugs, Bradford. Well, thank you, sir. Now, will you also give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis of The Bad Seed? I will. I will be happy to, but I'm going to pull up this uh, other document, and now here it is. All right, so uh, here we go. Let's uh, cue the music. Eight-year-old Rhoda Penmark is angry, not because her father, a colonel, is heading off to Washington for four weeks, not because her apartment building's janitor, Leroy Jessup, is hovering a little too close for comfort. No, Rhoda's pissed because her classmate, Claude Daigle, has won the school's penmanship medal, and in Rhoda's mind, that just isn't fair. Meanwhile, Rhoda's doting mother, Christine, has begun to wonder whether Rhoda might be a little too interested in the medal, and when word comes that Claude has met a suspicious end at the school picnic, Christine's curiosity turns to worry. Is Rhoda really as sweet and innocent as she looks? Is Leroy really just a mixed-up fool who monologues on occasion? Or is something more nefarious afoot? Something to do with heredity, with nature versus nurture, and a certain coincidence that takes place whenever Rhoda is in the vicinity of those she considers obstacles to her desires. Ooh, outstanding work, sir. Thank you. All right, so let's talk about this film. Um, it is, of course, based on two sources. Uh, the play of the same name by Maxwell Anderson, which was itself based on a novel of the same name by William March. Yes, and before we get into the film, I think it's worth taking uh, a moment to talk about the play. Uh, Maxwell Anderson was a pretty established writer by that point. He'd already had the play Winterset and the musical Knickerbocker Holiday on Broadway. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize for his political drama, Both Your Houses, and he'd written the screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. Right you are. The production of The Bad Seed was directed by one Reginald Denham. 
It opened in December 1954 at the old 46th Street Theater, and after five months it moved to the Coronet Theater on 49th Street and remained there until its final performance in September 1955, having run 334 performances. Uh, the play featured Nancy Kelly, who won the Tony Award for her performance. Uh, it also featured the adorably pigtailed Patty McCormick as her daughter Rhoda, Henry Jones as Leroy Jessup, Evelyn Varden as landlady Monica Breedlove, and Eileen Heckart as the tragic, eternally soused Hortense Daigle. Uh, the play was shortlisted for the 1955 Pulitzer Prize, but from what we've read, Joe Pulitzer himself pressured the prize jury into giving the Tony to Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So the film, The Bad Seed, was directed by Mervyn Leroy, not to be confused with Leroy Jessup. Uh, and Mervyn Leroy's directing resume includes 1932's I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, Gold Diggers of 1933, the 1949 version of Little Women, Quo Vadis in 1951, Mr. Roberts in 1955, and the adaptation of Gypsy in 1962. Uh, and he's also an uncredited director, along with four others and Victor Fleming, on a little film that we like to call The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Uh, Leroy was nominated for one Oscar for 1942's Random Harvest before winning the Academy's ultimate consolation prize, the Irving Thalberg Award in 1976. Uh, the film's screenwriter was John Lee Maheen, who'd previously been nominated for Captain's Courageous in 1937 and earned another nom for Heaven Knows Mr. Allison in 1958, and who also wrote or contributed to Hollywood classics like A Star is Born, The Wizard of Oz, the 1941 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Tortilla Flat, The Yearling, and Showboat. The Bad Seeds cast features many of the same actors from the play, including Patty McCormick, Nancy Kelly, Eileen Heckert, Evelyn Varden, and Henry Jones. New to the cast, however, were William Hopper as Rhoda's dad, Colonel Kenneth Penmark, Gage Clark as criminologist Reginald Reggie Tasker, uh, Jesse White as Monica's brother, Emery, and Paul Fix as Christine's father, Richard Dick Bravo. You know, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it, how many actors from the play just moved right into their film roles. I have a question for both of you. Um, out of curiosity, do you think that's something that was kind of more expected or at least less unusual at that time? <laughs> it's called the Tallulah Bankhead story. Michael, you want to talk about this? Uh, no, I think even then, generally they went for bigger Hollywood names for the for the movie version. But I've, I have a problem with them doing that. Let, let's imagine years later something like Doubt, much as I love Meryl Streep, if they had gone with Cherry Jones, who was phenomenal. Or again, another Merrill vehicle, August Osage County, if they had gone with Deanna Dunnigan and Rondi Reed, the Broadway cast. But of course, they never would. So I have to give them credit for going with these people who are not big names. Nancy Kelly was sort of a Western star or something. I don't know. She was always a B actress. She's drunk and she's overacting. Uh, so I give them all the credit. Nobody would have been better than Patty McCormick as Rhoda. Absolutely no one. 
Eileen Heckert is brilliant. And one thing I love about Eileen Heckert is you, you don't get the feeling she's played this on stage over and over again the way you do sometimes. Eileen Heckert makes you feel in the moment. She's so raw. Everyone in the movie is over the top. They're all playing for the balcony, but she makes you believe her pain. That's why I mentioned Tallulah Bankhead, because it was like every part that Tallulah would originate on the stage, like Betty Davis would play in the film. Mm. Yeah. Right, right, right. And right. you have to understand these are big budget things that, you know, depend on making money and they, they get nervous to go with Broadway names. Right. The concerns are the same then as they are now. Absolutely. It's, that's never going to change. So this is kind of unusual, kind of an a anomaly, I would say, then, this particular cast. Absolutely. And you have to wonder, why did they get rid of some of the supporting players and replace them with William Hopper? Why not keep the entire Broadway cast? Who knows? But, you know, there are some interesting names that pop up in sort of cameo parts or non-speaking roles. Can I just mention a couple of those? Yeah, yeah, sure. Shelley Fabre, uh, who, of course, went on to sing Johnny Angel. And many years later, she was in the sitcom Coach. She's in here. Kathy and the Donna Reed Show. Exactly. Kathy Garber, who was sissy from a family affair, a family affair after this movie, uh, pops up. And Francis Bavier, who was Ampy and Andy Griffith show. Yeah. So it's fun to spot these little cameo players of people who are going to be famous in the future. Where where are these people showing up? Are they in the picnic scene? I'm I trying to figure out where they would have been in the in the film. Uh one of them is in the classroom. Um yeah, Francis Bavier's in the dinner party scene. You really have to not blink. Who rang that bell? Jesus. All right, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers and whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought, and then we make fun of the critics. Yes, so The Bad Seed was released on September 12th, 1956, it had a budget of $1 million and did pretty well, earning four times that at the box office. Now, critically speaking, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times was a little let down by the film. He wrote, quote, Since the bad seed has been transplanted from stage to screen with the principal players of its original cast intact, and with the line of its story faithfully followed except at the very end, you might think the motion picture version would have as much shattering impact as the play, or even more considering the opportunity for the camera to embrace a wider scene. Boz concluded, quote, but by some rather curious disillusion, which probably occurs as a consequence of looking too closely at its basically melodramatic characters, this film about the monstrous mortal mischief that is done by an eight-year-old girl tends to appear synthetic. Meanwhile, Variety put out this perplexing review, quote, This melodrama about a child with an inbred talent for homicide is pretty unpleasant stuff on its own. The film remains more of the theater than of the motion picture field. Nonetheless, it is well done within that qualification. What does that even mean? Well, hey, sir, you know what they say about the critics. What do they say about the critics, Bradford? They say a critic is a man who knows the way, but can't drive the car. Except for Michael. He rides a bike. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, this film did not win any Oscars, but it did receive four nominations uh, for Nancy Kelly, Patty McCormick, Eileen Heckart, and for its black and white cinematography by Hal Rawson. 
Thankfully, Heckart did win a Golden Globe Award for her portrayal of Mrs. Daigle, which is not bad for 10 minutes of screen time. And it is definitely not worth mentioning that The Bad Seed was remade in 2018 for a lifetime under the direction of one Rob Lowe, starring Lowe, McKenna Grace, Carabono, and yes, Patty McCormick in the role of the psychiatrist. And now's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and in every case, is me. Uh, So before we get started, I just want to confirm, um, Michael, unlike Eric, you've seen this film maybe once or twice before. Oh, yeah. Uh, When I was born, which was in 1955, uh, they showed it to me in the waiting room. <laughs> it turned me gay. <laughs> oh my god! It, it's been on a reel ever since, just in my mind. I've seen it over and over again. It never disappoints. Okay, so Bradford, why don't you tell us why you chose this film for our curriculum? Well, it's a classic. Um, it's an early example of a movie in which um, the protagonist is also the antagonist, much like um, A Clockwork Orange or Taxi Driver or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, um, American Psycho, uh, the, the film about Eileen Warnos, uh, Monster. Um, and I think it's also an early example of a film in which the antagonist is a child, uh, which we would see again in films like The Omen with... Um, Damien, or Children of the Corn with Isaac, or Reagan McNeil in The Exorcist, or the kid in um, Goodnight Mommy, or all of the children in Village of the Damned. Um, And I would say that Henry, um, Macaulay Culkin's character in The Good Son, uh, is not entirely dissimilar to The Bad Seed. Um, I think Rhoda is a sociopath or psychopath, depending on who you ask. Um, And she's, as her mother says, an adroit liar and a kind of inveterate con artist. She's preternaturally mature. Um, Her teacher and her classmates are the only ones who can kind of sniff her out. Um, But nothing stands in the way of Rhoda's getting what she wants. And Rhoda seems to be the direct aesthetic antecedent for um, Annabelle, the haunted doll from the Annabelle movies. And of course, this episode comes hot on the heels of our old dark house episode. So it's a good way to talk about the concept of camp. Camp, of course, uh, being um, an, an aesthetic evaluation or reevaluation of a piece of art uh, in which it's baser or more audacious attributes are elevated and held in high regard. And I'm not going to go too much further into defining what camp is, um, because someone named Susan Sontag once wrote a very excellent essay about it. But um, in a film like The Old Dark House, uh, Whale is basically still today in control of the audience's assessment of that film and what happens in it. And any camp attributes are intentional. Um, In that film, Ernest Thesiger is a sculptor and his medium is camp. But with the bad seed, um, I think we can touch on ideas of unintentional camp, um, which I would obviously like Maestro Musto to tease out. Um, 
but it, so it's a it's a classic and it's a camp classic in its reevaluation. But um, if we use terms like shocking excess or exaggerated or theatrical to define camp, um, Mervyn Leroy's direction of this film does not tone down the staginess of the entire experience in translating it to the closer and uh, obviously more intimate medium of film. And I don't think he particularly modulates the actors' performances, um, neither the way they deliver their lines nor their gestural vocabularies. That's true. And that's I, I would compare it to Killing of Sister George, which did use the original star, Beryl Reed, and she plays it exactly as she plays it on stage. She's playing to the balcony. Right. Yeah, this might as well have been directed by Robert Aldridge, not Mervyn Leroy. <laughs> But what I like about it is it really is the original George Santos story. <laughs> because it's about success and notoriety at any cost. She doesn't care if she really earned that penmanship medal. She wants to be able to brag that she has it. She doesn't care what means she achieved to get that thing in her possession. I also like the way it so pretentiously works in these sort of serious issues like nurture versus nature. And of course, nature wins, which totally absolves the mother, Christine, of any wrongdoing. She was a wonderful mother. It's not her fault. And of course, this is one of those psychoses that skips a generation. I really have a problem with that. But I love the way it mixes these pseudo-psychological discussions, which Monica Breedlove loves to kind of throw into the mix. She doesn't breed love. She breeds suspicion. And uh, I love the way it combines all that with camp, pure camp. And it knows that it's camp. Now, Michael, just for the uh, benefit of our audience, you mentioned a director named Robert Aldrich. Can you tell our audiences how they might know the work of Robert Aldrich and why you associate him with camp? Robert Aldrich, here's the shocker. He was straight, <laughs> but somehow he directed Baby Jane, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, Legend of Lila Claire. He was the camp king of Hollywood. He was like the creator of Grand Dame Guignol. Yeah, which I call Granny Guignol. But, right, but yeah. they always called it exploitation. I prefer Granny Guignol. He got these mature actresses to allow themselves to be shown in an unflattering light if they could play juicy characters who were kind of going at each other's throats. And uh, Joe Crawford was so upset with in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte when she realized once again Betty Davis had the better part like she did in Baby Jane that Joan C Crawford suddenly got very sick and dropped out of the movie and they brought in Olivia de Havilland. Well, dropped out or got fired, depending on <laughs> what version you believe, right? And let's not forget that Joan, Joan Crawford, when Betty Davis was nominated for the Oscar for Baby Jane and Joan wasn't. Joan Crawford wrote to the other four nominees for Best Actress and said, if you can't make it by any chance, I would love to accept for you. So, of course, Anne Bancroft was busy on Broadway and couldn't make it. So guess who accepted the fucking Oscar? Not the loser, Betty Davis. Joan Crawford was up at the podium with the Oscar in her hand. Glittering in silver, holding that gold Oscar, right? And she screwed herself over because she had points in Baby Jane. And if Betty had won, Joan would have made more money. But she didn't care. She didn't want Betty to win the Oscar. And that's life imitating trash. God damn it. That sounds like the fire drill. 
Everyone, please leave the building single file. Walk, do not run. Though don't you dare leave your shoes behind to burn. And uh, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, what are you, nuts? Go away, but then come back. Okay, gents, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We will be breaking this section up into two segments, on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't quite work. All right, but before we get into it, I just have to ask you both to establish where we are on this playing field. A basic yes or no response, please. Did you like this film? Michael? Yes. Eric? You know, Bradford, uh... This does not like, sound like a basic yes or no answer, Eric. Like is a, is a very strong word. And so I'm just going to say that I was amused by this film. All right. All right. Let's get into it then. Uh, we'll do honor roll first. We'll do it round robin style. Uh, and we will each name the scene or scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we'll come back and hand out detention slips. So Michael, as our guest, we're going to let you go first. What is your first nomination for the honor roll for the bad seed? Uh, I would give the line that uh, Henry Jones as Leroy says to little Rhoda about how boys get blue electric chairs and girls get pink ones. (laughs) I think he says some other stuff in that same speech that really pays off later in the film, too. And I liked her line to him where she goes, you won't go to heaven when you die. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, all right, Eric, would you like to give out an honor roll mention for uh, for, for the bad seed? Yes, I would. Um, I think we should give it up for Eileen Heckart. Um, again, as I mentioned, on screen for 10 minutes and makes the absolute most of them. Um, I guess some would say she's drunk schmacting here, but I don't know. As, as big as it is, and I say that in quotes, it has a tragic realism to it that's kind of riveting. Um, it's inter- I looked at a list of supporting actor nominations uh, with the least amount of screen time, and she's not even in the top 10, which really surprised me. There are, there are nominated actresses who are on screen for less than five minutes, so um, Eileen had all the time in the world, I guess. All right, Mr. Lorick, do you have uh, a nomination for the honor roll? Well, I do, um, Mr. Winnick, and you know mine is uh, is the same as yours. Um, I would like to give an honor roll nomination to the performance of Eileen Heckert. So she good has, as we have all mentioned, ten minutes of screen time, two five minute scenes, and they are spaced almost exactly one hour apart. One hour and, apart. That's right. And those ten minutes are spent nearly entirely monologuing. And they start soused, and they get even soustier. And they're tempestuous, and they're mercurial, and they're powerful, and they're sad. And I think in this performance, Mrs. Daigle is clearly a, a wonderful mother. When she holds Rhoda, she's she's like transformed. You know, the alcohol dissipates, and she's like beatific with a child in her arms. And there's so much that we learn in her scenes. Um, the concept of breeding or good breeding is reiterated again and again. She makes reference to Christine's father as being rich Richard Bravo, and she makes a distinction between 
Christine and herself. Yeah. Um, you know what? There's a lot of class stuff in here that I there didn't is. realize. There is. Tons. I mean, because here she's also talking about how Christine comes from an upper level of society and how Christine looks down on her. She talks about how Christine probably had a debut. Um, and, and she says that she always considered Christine to be a gentle name, whereas her own name, Hortense, sounds fat. And she has that rhyme, Michael. Do you remember the rhyme? My girl Hortense hasn't got much sense. Let's write her name on the privy fence. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I also think that Hortense Daigle, um, drunk though she may be, also sees perhaps the most clearly of anybody in the story. She's like a character from Greek tragedy. She's a Cassandra type. And for one reason or another, she speaks the truth, yet no one will believe what she says. And I think watching Eileen Heckert is like watching a master class when she's on screen. She breaks your heart, you know, because her character is the one with the loss. Christine, the mother, Christine can go into deep denial, which she does. My little perfect daughter couldn't have done that. You know, it isn't until it's rubbed in her face that she goes, holy moly, you know, my daughter's a psycho. Then you have uh, Henry Jones. As, can we talk about him for a second? He's the troubleshooter. He's the one snaking around like Agnes Moorhead did in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. He's the handyman, I guess, who kind of seems like from another town. This, Believe it or not, the movie's supposed to be set in New York City. But whenever Henry Jones is on screen, you think you're in Appalachia. He's scampering around and he's catching wise. But you can't outsmart Rhoda Penmark. He should really just keep his trap shut or just tell the authorities. But he keeps taunting Rhoda. And of course, he's doomed. We haven't even talked about Evelyn Varden as Monica Breedlove. I love her performance because she's a touch of class. Um, would you like to give her an, uh, an honor roll nomination? I would because she, she's the only woman who didn't get nominated except for Sissy from Family Affair. You know, Henry Jones is like stinking up the joint with his acting. Somehow I think he got nominated too. But I think Evelyn is, is just some classy lady. I have no idea where she came from. She just kind of wafts in as the, as the landlady. She's like Phyllis Lindstrom from the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> Eric, would you like to give a second honor roll nomination? Yeah, I, I want to just say that Nancy Kelly's performance really grew on me. I also read that she was considered over the top. But I don't know. Um, she seemed pretty reined in for the first half. And then when she started losing it in the second half with the pounding on the table and the door and that insistent piano music, I mean, it, it felt pretty believable that she was coming apart. And even Hortense is like, you know, come on over, toots. I'll give you a beauty treatment. She's also in the best moment in the film, which I'll talk about in the superlatives, which is the solo shot of her in the window as we hear Leroy's screams in the background. Well, then um, please allow me to make my second yes. nomination. Please do. Um, so I, I want to talk about the sort of tidy structure and the payoff from all of the <clears throat> bad seeds that are planted starting almost from the very beginning. Um, and these details kind of emerge in higher relief the more you watch the film. But I think it's very clear from the very beginning, uh, especially upon further rewatching, that even Christine seems uncomfortable around Rhoda. It's as if she's nervous, I think, to be spending time alone with her own daughter. Um, and, you know, early in the film, Leroy says that Rhoda can see through him, but he can see through her. It creates this kind of equivalency among villains. Um, I think it's really interesting that whenever serial killers are referred to, which they are with 
pretty alarming frequency throughout this film. The only serial killers referred to are women. Um, I think that character names are really interesting. Monica has a conversation about it around the table around 15 minutes into the film. She talks about Monica Breedlove and the sort of etymology of that last name. I think when we think about it, Rhoda Penmark, it's interesting that her last name Penmark seems to relate to her desire for the penmanship prize. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's also some other kind of clever wordplay. Um, Emery, Monica's brother, makes a joke involving um, the lovebird Sweetsy, saying that um, instead of a cuttlebone, he's going to give him some kettlebaum, referring to the psychiatrist that they're talking about. Um, again, along the same lines of like the payoff of these seeds that are planted. You know, Christine has this nagging suspicion that she's adopted, which later is revealed to be correct. Um, you know, if you look, uh, you know, with regard to production design, there are framed silhouettes on the walls. And one of those is a, a woman holding a baby far away from her at arm's length. Um, we have Chekhov's Excelsior um, when Kenneth purchases the tea set for Rhoda and the clerk in the toy shop underlines it for us that it's going to be packed very carefully in Excelsior, which obviously comes back when Leroy is uh, burned alive in the basement. Um, Christine, of course, there, Eric, as you were talking about before with the sort of class distinction, um, you know, Christine's response is that, well, those are children who grew up in slums. Um, but of course, at that moment, very conveniently, the conversation's interrupted by Christine's father, who argues the other side, that um, the child murders, murderers are always a product of environment. My favorite, though, is where um, Rhoda and Leroy are back out under the Scuppernong grape arbor. Um, and Rhoda tells him that she knows that he's he's lied to her. You know, they're talking about the stick bloodhound. Um, and Leroy says that even though there might not be a stick bloodhound, there's still a stick. He says that there is still a murder weapon, which they might find. And he as Michael was talking about, suggests that she's going to go to the electric chair, a little blue one for boys and a pink one for girls. And he says it's going to part her hair like a bolt of lightning. And that perfectly presages Rhoda's eventual undoing on the pier versus deus ex machina, a, a bolt of lightning in a rainstorm. So my honor roll mention is for the... Um, the, the nice, neat structure and all of the, um, the, the sort of symbolism that carries us through the entire film. Bravo. Can I uh, ask Michael if he has a third uh, honor roll nomination? Um, I probably would go with the curtain call, even though I think it's kind of pathetic. <laughs> but let's just say... But you love it all the I same. do, because it's the ultimate campy curtain call of all time, as far as Hollywood goes. And unfortunately they had to reverse the play where Rhoda lives and the mother dies. Of course, that's what would happen in real life, let's face it. But in the movie, because of the Hayes Code, Rhoda has to die by lightning because they didn't want the mother to succeed in killing that's her. That's right. And uh, the mother lives. In any case, that's then followed by another Hayes Code kind of episode where they say, and now our cast and each one comes out and takes a bow. It's like a Broadway show, which the bad scene was. 
And then when Nancy Kelly comes out for her bow, she then says, oh, and as for you, and cutely kind of looks at Rhoda, who then comes and sits, you know, lays across her lap, and Nancy Kelly uh, whoops the shit out of Patty McCormick. Uh, why am I giving this as a plus? The more I talk about it, I think it's disturbing. <laughs> I think it's a, a, a pseudo-cute act of child abuse that is supposed to forgive Rhoda for having killed three people. But it's so camp, it's so crazy and wrong that you cannot help by be, but be entertained by it. Just a quick question, Michael, um, regarding that curtain call. Um was was that something that was seen in a number of films? Because I actually don't think I've seen anything quite like that before. I've never seen that except I think the movie Homicidal, where they have the big reveal that the lead actor was actually a female actor. There's also a movie called Skidoo by Otto Preminger, which has really interesting uh, credits at the end. They're sung by Harry Nielsen, and he just sings like, Carol Channing playing so-and-so, and it's... But but it's it's not like Bad Seed where each actor comes out and literally takes a bow as if on a Broadway stage. We've all seen the line, a good cast is worth repeating, right? But this kind yep. of dials it up. Oh, God, yeah. All right, Eric, would you like to give your third honor roll nomination? Yes, I would, sir. Um, you know, I appreciated the way this film dealt with the idea of, of nature versus nurture in a pretty frank, open way. And unless I'm wrong, I think it took a pretty jaundiced view towards both Richard Bravo and the doctor in the end who kind of shrug off the idea that genetics can play a, a part in the way someone turns out. I mean, there's a real kind of nasty class and race implication in that statement. And as if only people raised in bad circumstances could turn out bad themselves, you know, and when we learn who Christine's real mother is, it's like, it's like a slap in the face to all the men who think it can't possibly be the case. So if anyone comes off smelling like a rose here, it's it's actually Reggie Tasker, whose own theory about heredity turns out to be true. Um, my third honor roll mention, there is a beautiful moment at around a half hour into the film. Christine has just finished reading Rhoda a bedtime story. And she switches off the lights. And in a very sort of old Hollywood cinematic way, the light changes really abruptly. It's moonlight and stream, uh, moonlight and street lights. And they're all coming in from outside, illuminating the interior in a way that really tells us that we're probably watching a noir. And I think it's really beautifully composed and really beautifully photographed. Lovely. Detention, after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? M motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Michael, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? Uh, this is very specific, but when she says, give me those shoes, she says it like 800 fucking million times. <laughs> 
What was the director thinking? What was the editor thinking? Were they all asleep on the job? Have you watched that scene where she just keeps saying different ways of saying the same thing? You've got the shoes. Give me the shoes. I want my shoes. Give me my shoes. And she has really weird pronunciation, like the way she says the word me. Bradford, can you do the way she says oh, me? I don't know. I think it's like because she's it's like, give them to me. Yeah, give them to me. That really gets under my skin, but maybe it's supposed to. I, I don't know why that bugs me so much. It's such a minor thing. It's really yeah, I mean, shrill. It's, it's really shrill. I don't think I would even call it shrill. It's like super grating. It's grating. It's grating. I mean, she's not like she's not like screeching it. She's like it's this incredible anger behind it, you know. But I yeah. do think Michael, like you know, Rhoda will not be put off from getting whatever she wants. You know, if she doesn't get it, she's going to ask again in a slightly different way, and then again in a slightly. And by ask, I of course mean demand and scream and throw a fucking fit until she gets the thing she wants. Oh, yeah, I get it. But, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious without her saying it a thousand times. Sure, yeah. I wanted to murder her. Um, I, I think I'm going to tread on some territory we've already covered, but I think for a different reason. Um, and it's that the film lets the audience off the hook. It totally deflates itself at the end. And first... It's by changing the ending from the novel in the play, um, as Michael kind of pointed out, which was at the insistence of the studio, um, you know, to ensure that the evildoer gets her comeuppance. You know, in the original, Christine dies after she night mothers herself and Rhoda survives. But here, of course, the opposite happens. And then there's the curtain call and we're nearing the conclusion and Rhoda has tiptoed out of bed and she's dressed herself and she's out in the storm and she's sneaking out to retrieve the lost penmanship medal that her mother has dropped into the pond. Eau Claire de Lune is playing again and again and again and Rhoda gets out on the pier and lightning is flashing in the sky. Rhoda reaches out for that net that is conveniently placed right next to her. She begins probing into the water, looking for the penmanship prize. And just like that, deus ex machina, divine intervention, bolt of lightning strikes the dock and kills Rhoda. And the camera cranes up into the branches of the tree. The words, the end, appear on the screen. And a second later, they trot out the cast for that incredibly theatrical curtain call right each actor's name and character is announced and they literally acknowledge the audience and then nancy kelly comes out last she nods her head she acknowledges the camera and then she comes back into the apartment set where patty mccormick is sitting on the sofa dressed as rhoda and michael i think it, it's actually quite humorous the way that they're trying to do this takes rhoda over her knee She's spanking her in this really exaggerated but very kind of lighthearted way. And little Patty McCormick is laughing and giggling and wiggling through the entire thing. And then we get that ridiculous title card on screen that Eric kind of referred to in the opening that says, you know, you've just seen a motion picture whose theme dares to be startlingly different. Please do not divulge the climax of this story. I mean, I just think the, the way that it absolves the audience of having to think about anything after the movie ends is, is kind of disingenuous. And I think that deserves a detention slip. And who would even reveal the climax? It would take like three hours. It's like Christine gives her daughter pills and shoots herself and then Christine survives and the daughter's hit by lightning 
and then Christine, you know, spanks her anyway. Right. Yeah, it's I, I resent that curtain call, as I said, even though I, I put it as a plus, but it was uh, dictated by the Hayes Code because they had to show was that- Was it the code or the studio? Well, the studio was giving in to the, the code, which is the general- The Hayes Code. The, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, the Hayes office. They'll do it to you every time. Um, Eric, do you have a detention slip? I do. I mean, you guys have just made my job very easy here because actually two of my three detention slips were, were about the end. So I, I, I can, I'm just going to brush through those when I get to them. So the first one, I know we only get three of these. So I was going back and forth on, on my number one. I was going to give a slip to the score by the normally reliable Alex North. It is just so sentimental and intrusive. Just not a good Alex North score in this. Um, but instead, I'm going to give it to Paul Fix as Richard Bravo. Um, and I understand he was not the guy from the play, and I wonder why that is, uh, because he is absolutely awful in this film. He is stiff. He has no idea how to move as an actor. And half the time, he seems to be staring off screen at what I can only imagine are cue cards. He does have a kind of flat affect, Paul Fix does. But I have to say, I don't think that's intentional. I just think he's the wrong guy for the role. And and who knows, maybe he was hitting the sauce as much as Dick does in the film. I mean, are you sure that when he's looking off, he's just avoiding, he isn't just avoiding eye contact? You know, it, a better actor would be able to avoid eye contact much more intentionally than Paul Fix does. No, it really seemed like like there was somebody off screen maybe feeding him his lines because this guy was beyond bad. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, back to Michael. Detention? Uh, I would say the fact that they really don't open it up. And I don't like artificially opened up plays that become movies where they lose the intimacy. But I don't think they really rethought it for the cinematic uh, medium. Do you? Well, I, that's a great point. And no, I don't think that they do. I mean, I think that that is, again, you know, Mervyn Leroy's kind of not translating the staginess for film. And, you know, I mean, it is essentially a domestic drama that goes off the rails. But, um, I mean, it is it, it feels like it's taking place on a single set. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, to me, that was a problem that this wasn't reinvented as a film. It's almost a stage. It's almost a filmed stage play. I mean, can you think of um, any other examples of of stage plays that were filmed more successfully? I mean, I think of something like Dracula with Bela Lugosi, which came from Broadway, went to California, and became the film we know today by Todd Browning. Um, and it, certainly, there are aspects of it which continue to feel stagey but not as anchored to a production on the stage as The Bad Seed does. Yeah, I mean, I think Death of a Salesman and Glass Menagerie have the same problem, but by nature of the plays themselves, they are stage-bound. They are limited, you know, sets. Uh, but something like Amadeus, which was brilliant on stage and very theatrical, was brilliantly reconceived as a film by Milos Forman. At an epic scale, almost. yeah. They really made it a whole other animal, and that's what you have to do. Um, all right, Eric, you got another detention slip? Yeah, but I'm going to just blow through these because you guys have already talked about them. Um, I was going to talk about the end of the film, um, and in doing so, I was going to split it into two detention slips. Um, the first slip goes to that bizarre death that you referred to by Lightning, uh, that 
uh, Rhoda meets on the dock in the thunderstorm. I know that in the play, Christine dies, Rhoda lives with Kenneth none the wiser. And boy, if that isn't a more satisfying and scary conclusion, I don't know what is. Right. Um, we've been over whether you know it was the production code at the time. Um, I don't. I, I don't know if they were audience testing films at that point, but uh, I, I'm sure it was the production code that made the decision. It was laughably bad and not in a good way. I mean, you can call this movie a camp classic if you like, but that ending did not work for me at all. And I mean, when you see Nancy Kelly laying in bed, you know, all imhotepped, yes. Um, and yet somehow still very glamorous for someone who's just shot herself in the head. Oh yeah. It feels, you know, I mean, it does ring a little false. Yeah. A little bit. Um, entirely. But again, I mean, it, it does kind of feel like that's how you would have seen a character represented like that in just about any film of the period. You know, there would be no emphasis on realism. Um, but Again, I mean, there's an essential kind of phoniness about this film, again, which I love in many, many ways. But, um, you know, it it, it doesn't ring true at all. Um, And, you know, for for my second detention slip, um, I'm going to begin by asking, where does this take place? Oh my God, I actually had the same thought. Where does this film take place? We know that Kenneth right. goes to Washington, but where is this? Right. And from what I understand, the play and the novel were both set in New York City, but this location is clearly not New York City. And there's a reference to the Penmarks having lived in Wichita, but we're not there either. And all of the actors speak in a very cultivated, very trained British Mid Atlantic dialect except for maybe Mr. and Mrs. Daigle whose dialects are kind of agnostic but the Leroy character is such a weird out of place stereotype he's a a bumpkin like southerner or southern type which feels a little easy um not unlike as Michael pointed out earlier Agnes Moorhead's character Velma Crother in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte but hers is more or less dramaturgically authentic. Okay. Um, Eric, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, just I was going to talk about the curtain call, but again, I don't really feel like I have to at this point. Um, there was one other film that I think we had a uh, the experience of last season, which was Black Sabbath. You know the end of that film uh, when Mario Bava pulls back the curtain to show Boris Karloff and the fake horse. And it yes. works. It works because the whole film is really about artifice. You know, I mean, it's it, it doesn't purport to be real life. And here, say whatever you want, it does supposedly take place in a real world um, right. and deals with a somewhat taboo for the time subject uh, of a child murderer. You know, to replicate the end of the stage production right down to Nancy Kelly taking Patty McCormick over her knee and spanking her is just so jarring. It's so inappropriate. It's just such a bizarre choice to retain that. And Mervyn Leroy, I mean, this is not a first-time director. Like, what was he smoking? So you're basically saying that what you want is to see Patty McCormick abusing the corpse of her mother. No, I want Patty McCormick to come in and slap Nancy Kelly silly so that she sobers up a little bit. (laughs) 
All right. Well, uh, shall we continue on? Yeah. What, what, what's the next part, sir? Superlatives, Mr. Winnick. Oh, my goodness. All right. Before we bring it home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess, get some air into our lungs, run around a bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack or two. Michael, growing up, did you have a favorite recess snack? Oh, I love devil dogs. Did you? Yeah. Really? Why would I lie about that? I assumed that it was going to be artisanal pork rinds. Salt and vinegar artisanal pork rinds. They didn't have those when I was a kid. This was back in the Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back and give out our superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. He's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noé Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for Gaspar Noé, the dread auteur of such films as Irreversible, Enter the Void, Climax, Love 3D, and, of course, Lux Eterna. Uh, Mr. Lork, Most Disturbing Scene, do you want to start us off with this one? Sure. Um, I'm going to give my Gaspar Noe award to the death of Leroy. Um, He's shrieking and running and burning out of the cellar until he collapses and dies. And while we don't see it, once again, as with many things in The Bad Seed, it's handled in a very theatrical manner. The carnage is off screen as it was ostensibly off stage. But it's intense, and our experience of it through Christine's reaction is what makes it so. You know, Bradford, I am just going to follow you up with that because I had the exact same thing Um, for my Gaspar Noe Award. um, That scene in the window where we just hold on Christine's face and hear Leroy's agonized screams as he's dragged out of the burning basement, I thought that was brilliant on the other Leroy's part, Mervyn Leroy, to not see the scene taking place in the courtyard. And it reminded me of that scene in uh, Hereditary. And I'm not saying this was an influence on Ari Aster. Perhaps you know the scene where we just hold on Alex Wolf's face as his mother is screaming in the distance after she's found her daughter's body in the car. I don't want to spoil it, but Tony Collette's screams are the stuff of nightmare fuel. And I thought this functioned in a similar way. Actually, these two films have a lot more in common than you might think. I think that's wise. And also, uh, it's not limited, of course, in Hereditary to just that one scene. Very often, 
the camera is showing you a character's reaction to something horrible happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's just outside the edge of the frame. Of course. And as the title implies, yeah. it's about how evil is passed down generation so, to yes, generation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Michael, do you have a scene, the most disturbing scene in the film? I actually loved when Leroy exploded into flames because I couldn't stand him. <laughs> Was that disturbing? But I would say my most disturbing scene is the first time you see Nancy Kelly and she starts talking and you're like, holy shit, is she going to talk like that through the whole movie? (laughs) (laughs) That is disturbing. Well done, Mr. Mustaire. Okay, which brings us to the uh, Ellen Ripley Award for character that most uh, deserve to live but does not. Uh, Ellen Ripley, of course, the character played by Ms. Sigourney Weaver in the Alien Cinematic Universe. I am going to start this off, and I'm going to give it to the offstage character of Claude Daigle. Poor kid. Got to deal with an alcoholic mother, a father who's kind of a wet blanket, and you know, he 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 probably did earn that medal. So I, I, I know we don't ever meet him, but if we did, I would personally hand him the Ellen Ripley Award. Toot sweet. Mr. Lorick. Well, Mr. Winnick, I'm right there with you. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to give it to little Claudie Daigle. Oh. All he did was write beautifully. That's right. And, 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 and. in the novel. Yes. The prize is for most improved penmanship. Yes, it is. Rhoda already wrote beautifully, so she wasn't even up for it anyway. But I would like to make a correction. Yes. Hortense Daigle was not a drunk before Claude died. All of this is in response to her grief over the loss of her child. Okay. So Claude didn't have an alcoholic mother. Claude had a mother who became... An alcoholic. Oh, there's a fine distinction there, sir. And you are right to point that Subtle out. Subtle but significant. That's true. All right. Mr. Musto, character that most deserved to live but did not. Who do you got? Well, I would love to also give this to Claude Daigle, though I'm afraid that Rhoda will steal it away from him. But the poignant thing about Claude Daigle, he probably wasn't even that bright. You don't have to be smart to have nice penmanship. You know, it doesn't mean the words you're writing have any intelligence behind them. But the poor thing didn't deserve to die. He won some stupid award. It's like if someone killed me for winning the Glammy Award. (laughs) But Michael, Claude was dead. How would he know if he had the metal pinned to his jacket or not? (laughs) Dead people know a lot more than you think, Bradford. (laughs) Um. That brings us to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die and and does. Um, named for uh, who? Who is this named for again, Mister Lorick? Michael Myers. Yeah. The 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 from Halloween. The most famous yes. uh, slasher of them all Correct. from John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween. Yet John Carpenter, whose uh, birthday is uh, today, as we record January 16th. Um, so why don't you start us off, Mr. Lorick? Oh, there's only one character. The one character who most deserved to die, Leroy. <laughs> He's awful. Oh, I mean, I know somebody might, you both might say Rhoda, but it's Leroy. Leroy is, 
is reprehensible and Rhoda at least has a little bit of style. Yeah. By the way, in the curtain call, did you notice how the announcer calls him Leroy? Yes, I did. Yeah. So you're going to give it to Leroy played by yes. Henry Jones. Uh, Mr. Musto, would you like to go next? Uh, Michael Myers award. I would agree. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, Leroy thinks that he's so damn smart because he's figuring stuff out that, you know, anybody could figure out. It's all like a big duh. But he's actually not that smart because he's falling right into the trap of taunting Rhoda. And you don't taunt little Rhoda. So, like I said, I was thrilled when he exploded into flames. I thought it was fabulous. You know, Michael, it's funny because Monica at one point early in the film says that Leroy has the mind of an eight-year-old. Well, you know who else has the mind of an eight-year-old? Rhoda fucking Penmark has the mind of an eight-year-old. But I bet Leroy doesn't even have good penmanship. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Eric, who are you going to give your Michael Myers award to? Well, as Emery says, call me a mongoloid from Memphis because I'm giving this award to Rhoda fucking Penmark. Um, Even though she doesn't die in the source material, she does here. So congratulations, kid. You finally got your award. Wow. All right. All right. Um, And this brings us to a very complicated award that we like to call the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment, um, named for the director of such great uh, overrated films as uh, Crimes of Passion, uh, Horror, Lair of the White Worm, Salome's Last Dance. The Devils. That's not overrated. No, but but see... Boyfriend, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I was starting with the overrated films. I I mean, I think then we get into the the justly reviewed films like Tommy and Lishtomania and uh, Women in Love. So, well, all right. I mean, we've got to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to Ken Russell. Um, So, this is the most baroque screen moment, and uh, I'd like to hand this one off to Mister Musto to start us off uh what do you have michael i think it's where the elephant craps on margot roby oh that was babylon right right <laughs> um in any case i think there are scenes where you're hearing uh, claire de lune like constantly over and over again where she's uh <laughs> torturing people with claire de lune and to me it's chilling because it's usually a counterpoint with something horrible going on mm. Um, like every scene in the in the film, or just every time she plays Claire de Lune. I think it's uh, Christine is screaming something out the window or something. I think it has to be the scene where Christine is becoming unglued and she's banging and the piano and the screams that she thinks she hears, even though they've subsided, she thinks she still hears them. I mean, that whole scene feels pitched so high. It is, I think, the most baroque scene in the film, Bradford. Well, you know, I'm a little conflicted. I'm not sure if it's Rhoda's confession, where, you know, Christine and Rhoda are recounting the murder of Claude Daigle, and and Rhoda starts to to scream and to, to do that really grating thing with her voice, or if it's perhaps the sequence that really kind of starts with Christine's monologue to the sleeping Rhoda at the end, um, where she kind of takes upon herself the burden of, uh, or responsibility for Rhoda's kind of fractured psychology and her dangerous brain chemistry. Um, 
until Christine carries sleeping Rhoda to the bedroom, puts her inside, she exits the room, she closes the door behind her, she walks across the hall. The next thing we hear is a gunshot. Christine has shot herself. It feels like an operatic level of uh, reaction. So I think that's what it's going to be. I think it's the end sequence of Christine and Rhoda. All right. Uh, So that takes us to our final award of the evening. That is the Brad Dourif Award for character who could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. Um, Brad Dourif, of course, the actor uh, best known for... um, uh, what is he best known for, Mr. Lorick? Well, he's the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise. He is. He plays James Veneman, the Gemini killer in one of our favorite films, The Exorcist 3. Yes. Um, he is in uh, Dune. He was, nominated, he was nominated for Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Yes, he was. Billy Bibbit. Uh, so, so then, uh, he's usually, he's usually bug eyed and has a stutter and a speech defect. That's correct. But I mean, he, he, he's known for playing to the hilt, right? For chewing on the scenery and kind of everything he's in. He, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he, he, he jacks it up to about 11 in every film he's in. Um, okay. I'll start us off with this. I'm gonna, I was gonna say Hortense, uh, but I liked her so much, uh, that I think it would be a shame to have Eileen Heckert's performance taken away from her. So I'm going to say I would, would have liked to have seen Brad Dourif play the role of Christine Penmark, especially in the second half of the film. I think he would have brought yeah. a, a really special intensity to that role. That's unusual for you, Mr. Winnick. But Thank I you. applaud that that designation. What about you, sir? Um, I would like to see Brad Dourif play Leroy. I mean, I think it's an easy choice, but I think it's a perfect match of actor and character. Interesting. Okay, Michael, who would you uh, like to see Brad Dourif play in this film? Um, I think he did play Leroy. Did you watch the movie? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would like to see him play Rhoda's father, which was played by William Hopper, because with those bug eyes and all those speech defects, you would be thrilled every time he's sent away. <laughs> I'm surprised that you would not cast Brad Dourif in the role of Rhoda Penmark. Well, that would be Bud Court. Oh, that would <laughs> Bud, be genius. Bud Court, yes. Uh, now, if Bud Court played uh, Rhoda Penmark, would Ruth Gordon have to play Leroy? Oh, that's an interesting one. I would love to see that. What if we could just get the whole cast of Rosemary's Baby back together for a remake of The Bad Seed? Who would Mia Farrow play? It's bad enough that in the movie club I showed Look What Happened to Rosemary's Baby, which was a sequel to Rosemary's Baby. At this time, Rosemary was Patty Duke. And of course, Joe Crawford posed with little Patty Duke when Patty won the Oscar, because that was the year that Joan accepted for Anne Bancroft for a Broadway play that was well uh, translated to film, Miracle Worker. That's true. Much like the very neat structure and tidy writing of The Bad Seed, this entire episode has come full circle. We have arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And gentlemen, this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. So from A through F, Michael, would you like to give The Bad Seed a final letter grade? I know that I put in a lot of criticism, but I I really love this movie. And it's given so much inspiration to drag queens. Drag queens love running around as Rhoda and talking about the shoes and the, the basket of kisses and all that stuff. There's so many great lines in there. 
So for being high-minded and camp at the same time, I would have to say this movie is pretty special. I would definitely give it an A-. minus. All right. Um, Eric, how about you? <laughs> well, to paraphrase uh, last week's guest, Jason Kravitz, I'm giving this a 1954 B+, and a 2023 C+. Um, and I'm going to come in there... Uh, exactly on par with Mr. Musto and give the bad seed an A minus. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, We hope you enjoyed this episode of Scare You. And if you do, tell your friends, share our episodes on the social medias, have a listening party, bring some devil dogs, and hey, just subscribe. Then you don't have to think about it. It'll just show up every week. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our very special guest, my good friend, Michael Musto. Michael, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? I'm on Facebook and I'm also on Instagram. And you can find me at bradfordlorick.com. Eric, where can people find you? People can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the handle E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf and Sophia Lillis. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time in the tasteful apartment complex that we like to call Scare You. <laughs> now give me back my shoes. <laughs> <laughs>